Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green. I'm the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. And we just started last week with uh, the first of a series of, I'm not quite sure, frankly, how many episodes of uh, a series on the divine attributes of mercy. It's a concept that, that Christians are not particularly familiar with, but it's a large concept in Judaism, and so I uh, want us to focus on this, and it's largely because I believe that it gives us more to worship the Lord for. There's more to think about. When we just think about mercy, typically we're just thinking about one thing, but in Judaism, there's the 13 attributes of divine mercy, and so from my perspective, the best thing that we can do is have more and more things that we can worship the Lord for. And so what I want to do is, over this course of this series, is to look at where this idea of the 13 attributes of divine mercy came from, how they understand it. But more than that, I want to look at it through the lens of the New Testament, particularly through the life of Jesus in the Gospels, because I believe that if that's a true thing, if there are 13 attributes of divine mercy, then we ought to be able to find those in the life of Jesus. <laughs> so what I want to do for the next couple of episodes, I'm not quite sure how many, is back up and look at where does all this come from? How does it come about to start with? So where we find it is in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 8. And what it has to do with is when after the episode of the golden calf, which we're going to look at a little more closely next week, then something else happened, right? Moses went up on the mountain, made intercession for the people. He, he had already smashed the tablets on which the first commandments had been written. So he comes back down, fusses at the people, goes back and said, I'm going to go make atonement for you and hope this works. And in the midst of that 40 days on the mountain with, with uh, God, he has fasted and prayed during that same time. And so when he comes back, what he has done is he has asked, if I've found favor in your sight, let me see your glory. And that's when the Lord says, no, you can't see my face. I'm going to put you somewhere. I'm going to put my hand over your face. And as my glory passes by, and then you'll see my back. And so as he does, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. <clears throat> and it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. And this is where the 13 attributes come from. And if you want to see those, look at last week's note, show notes. So the Lord proclaims the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And then, having seen the glory of the Lord as it passed by and heard that proclamation of just exactly what kind of God the Israelites had among them and would, had agreed to serve, Moses then prays again. And he says, If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So what Moses has done and what he has seen is now he knows something about God that he didn't know when they came out of Egypt, didn't know when they came to Sinai, didn't know when he came down the mountain after the Lord <clears throat> said that 
what the people had done in the creation of the golden calf. He knows something about this God now that makes him a perfect God for the people Moses has been given to shepherd. Because he says, please go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses has told the truth. He's recognized something about this people, and he recognized they were a stiff-necked people. He didn't make that term up. In fact, it was exactly the term that God himself used when he spoke to Moses about what had happened with the golden calf. And so Moses is agreeing with the Lord and saying, yes, it is a stiff-necked people. But if you just proclaim the truth about yourself being merciful then you're exactly the kind of God we need. And it's safe for you to come and dwell in the midst of this people. Because otherwise, it wouldn't be safe for God to come and dwell among the people if he were not that sort of merciful God. And I believe that Moses only learned that. The people of Israel only learned that through the episode of the golden calf. Because let's think about what's happened before that. So what happens is is Moses has... um, been out in the desert tending his father-in-law's sheep. And while he's doing that, there's this incredible sight that happens. That sight is a bush burning but not being consumed by the flames of the fire. And he says, let's turn aside because I want to see what's going on here. And then a voice speaks to him from the bush. And the bush speaks and says, I'm the Lord. Take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. And then there's a conversation that ensues with Moses and the voice in the midst of the bush. And the the voice says, I am the Lord, your God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he calls on Moses now to go back to Egypt and be a part of the deliverance of the Israelite people from Egypt. After some negotiation and some hesitation, Moses agrees to go back and do this. But he asks for a sign. And he said, give me a sign that these things will be true, that in fact, I will go to Pharaoh. I will live through that experience. Because if you remember the last time Moses had been in Egypt, he had killed an Egyptian and word had gotten out and he fled Egypt for fear that he himself would be the next head on the chopping block. And so he's got reason to fear going back to Egypt, especially if he's going to go back to Pharaoh because he had grown up in Pharaoh's household and then he had decided to side with this other people in the midst of Egypt, these Israelite people from whom he himself was born and taken by Pharaoh's daughter as she drew him out of the waters. So he has reason to be concerned. The Lord says, all right, I'll give you a sign. Here's the sign that you're going to get. That sign is, when you've done these things, you'll worship me here at this mountain. That's not much of a sign, frankly, because I've got to do all these things before I actually know that that sign's going to be fulfilled. And Moses goes. He's had enough of arguing with the Lord. The Lord has fussed at him. He has not... Uh, he's gotten angry with him, and then he gave him his brother, Aaron, to go with him and be his mouthpiece, essentially, and Moses will be like a god to the people. The Lord gives him signs. He goes back. He does the signs. He authenticates himself. He goes then speaks to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Well, you know what happens next. We get plagues. We get plague after plague after plague that ends with the death of all the firstborn of Egypt, man and animals, all those in the land of Egypt who didn't 
abide by the Lord's instructions for that first Passover and who didn't put the sign of the blood on the doorpost and the lentils. Then they come out of Egypt. They come out of Egypt and they, they come first. It's a good thing. And then suddenly the Lord says, now here's what I want you to do. Pharaoh's had a second thought about letting you go and now he's ready to chase you into the wilderness and do away with his people. And so the Lord says, double back and come back around here so that Pharaoh can see you. I'm going to get glory in the eyes of the Egyptians. And so that's how they end up at the Red Sea. The Lord took them there, told them to go there, made them vulnerable to Pharaoh's army. And then he does the sign of splitting the Red Sea. So the Red Sea parts in the night. The whole nation of Israel crosses over that. Pharaoh's army chases them into the Red Sea. The waters then close over Pharaoh and kill him and his entire army. It's a wonderful thing. It's the first worship song that we know of. is sung immediately in the aftermath of that episode. Miriam, Moses' sister, is the leader of the choir, the worship band, if you prefer. And then, so the first worship song in the history of the people of Israel is sung right there on the other side of the Red Sea in thanksgiving for what the Lord has done for this people. Three days out in the wilderness, there's a problem. And the people complain and they murmur for the first time. And what they're murmuring about is there's no water. Human beings can't live, especially in that kind of an environment, longer than three days without water. And so their complaint is legitimate. You're going to have to do something miraculous. You brought us out here to kill us. Why did you do this? And then suddenly they come upon a place where there's enough water for all of them and their animals. That's quite an oasis, by the way, because you're talking about at least 600,000 men, possibly 3 million people with their animals that are out there in the wilderness. And so the Lord dramatically and wonderfully provided for the people. And then he brings them out to Sinai. They get there, and sure enough, exactly the sign Moses has been given is now being fulfilled. They've come out of the land. They're at this mountain, exactly where he saw that burning bush. Moses says, I know this place. This is where we're supposed to worship. And then shortly after they get there, the mountain itself is covered in fire. Not just a bush. No, that's a, that's a theophany, a vision, a, a, a vision of the Lord, a revelation that he has given. A th- that he's given the first, the bush burning is a man-sized theophany. The mountain burning is a nation-sized theophany. They can all see it. They can all hear the rumblings and the thunder. They hear the trumpets, which are shofars, blowing from the mountain. It's the voice of God. And in Judaism, what they'll say is is that that shofar voice is the voice of God that hasn't been heard since the time of Adam. And there's a longing to hear that voice. And so they hear this, and then... They, God begins to speak, and the Israelite people's response is, hey, how about this? This is a little scary. It's pretty frightening to see this mountain on fire, smoking, God telling us not to even come close to the mountain. Don't let anybody touch it. Fence it off all the way around. They said, so how about this? How about you, Moses, go and get all this stuff for us? We're perfectly fine. 
with you being our intermediary, our intercessor before the Lord, because it's a fearsome thing that we're seeing here. And so we'd like you to handle all that. And what they say, though, is interesting, because in every single translation that you're ever going to find, what it's going to say is, is that all the Lord has spoken, we will do. If you went and asked a rabbi or a Jewish person about that, they would look at you in wonderment, thinking you had lost your mind, that you have no earthly idea what you're talking about, and they, or they don't know what you're talking about, because what they have taught, and the best translation for that is actually not all the Lord has spoken, we will do. The best translation for that is, we will do and we will listen. They've committed to doing anything the Lord says prior to Him having spoken any of it. And so they see that as a a point of great pride in their ancestors, is that they committed to doing before they heard. They had already seen enough of God to say yes to whatever He had to say next. And so that translation would be better rendered, something more like, uh, all we will do and we will listen to all the Lord has to say. So what happens next? It's the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and I want to read those for you. And I want then to, to kind of look from there over to Exodus 34 and see how we might have gotten something different there and why it was actually almost important in many ways for the sin of the golden calf. Not particularly the sin of the golden calf, but for the nation to have blown it actually becomes an important learning step in their relationship with a God living among them. So let's look at the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So that defines why, in covenant terms, why he is able to give the law. He's the one who delivered them out of the land of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. So then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Sounds pretty reasonable given what he's done, right? Then you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." Next, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Fifth, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land and that that the Lord your God is giving you. Sixth, you shall not murder. Seventh, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that's your neighbor's. So that's the Ten Commandments. Those are the laws. It doesn't seem very difficult, frankly. But not too long after, 
what happened next was the Lord said, all right, now Moses, you come on up here on the mountain and I'll give you the rest of the law. And what they believe is that's not just the law that we find in the Torah. It's also all of uh, the oral Torah as well. All the, the stories, the lore, everything that makes up the 613 commandments that they can identify for which Jews are responsible. So Moses goes up. This is going to take a while. The Lord makes the tablets, inscribes with his finger these ten on there, and then imparts the rest of this knowledge and wisdom to Moses so that he can instruct the people on things like how to build the tabernacle, how to conduct worship, all those kinds of things. It's a lot of detail that he's going to get up on the mountain, so it takes a while. It's going to take 40 days, in fact. So in 40 days, Moses doesn't come down the mountain. The people panic. They don't know what's happened. We're going to talk more about this next week because there's some really interesting Jewish lore that relates to this that I believe is more interesting for us as Christians, in fact. So he goes up the mountain. He's there for 40 days. They miscount. They panic because he hasn't come down. They think this is not going to go anywhere further. And you would be afraid, too, if you thought your intermediary with God was gone and you didn't have anybody else, and you were in the wilderness, and you, your job was to go to a pl- promised land and go and take that ha- land and inhabit that land, and all you had were those Ten Commandments. They panicked, and so they told Aaron, Moses' brother, the one who had been appointed to the, to the priesthood, make us gods, because they needed gods to get them not just out of Egypt anymore, but to the promised land and to conquer the promised land. And he did. And we're going to look at that more next week, so I don't want to go really into that too much right now. But what I want to do is think just briefly with you about the mindset of this people and what it might well have been. You're talking about a people who had been uh, God's people for a very long time, but they had mostly been a family during a huge chunk of that time. And so they had these stories. They had the story of the creation. They had the story of Adam. They had the story of Abraham. They had the story of Noah. And so they knew the promise that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they had continued to fulfill that promise in Joseph coming to Israel and Joseph staying in Israel all that time. And the Lord had told them, you're going to be in Egypt for 400 years. So they knew their own story. They knew their God. Whether they were looking at that moment for God is a mystery. But we know that God showed up. We know first, in the beginning of Exodus, we're told that God heard their cries. It came before him, and then he began to act. So they knew they were a special people. They knew they were a people unlike every other people, but they didn't honestly know very much about this God. They knew one thing, and that is is that that he had been silent for 400 and something years. And most recently, he had been silent while genocide had occurred. The Egyptian pharaoh had killed the male Israelite children. And where was God? And then they had been enslaved after living as shepherds and goat herds during all that time. Now they were enslaved to work for Pharaoh and to build for Pharaoh. 
and God remained silent. What to make of that and how to deal with that? And then God showed up, and he showed up in the form of this person, Moses, who came and announced that he was God's representative, and he was there to be God's representative in the deliverance of the Israelite people. And initially, what happened was when he spoke to Pharaoh, things got worse for the Israelite people. Pharaoh said, well, let's make it harder for them. If they want to go out in the wilderness and, and worship their God three days, which would essentially mean we want to go outside, Pharaoh, you, you think you're a God. Well, God's had a territory, and that territory would be about three days out. And so when Moses said we want to go three days out and worship our God, he said two things. We're going outside your territory and your control, and we're worshiping a God that isn't you. Just slap in the face. And Pharaoh took it that way. And so he said, well, I'll just make it harder for these people, Moses. How about that, big boy? Let's see how that works. Let's see what you've got to say and what you've got to do about that. And it got worse. But then the plagues began. And so as the plagues began, the people of Israel began to see something about this God, that he was more powerful than the God of Egypt, the God that Pharaoh represented so they began to see that their God could do things that the Egyptian gods couldn't do. And so they began to trust that God. So when he would say things like, there's a big hailstorm going to come and it's going to destroy all the livestock, the Israelites who tended stock got their stock indoors and kept them safe. The Israelites didn't experience loss like the Egyptians did. Then they saw things like this complete darkness fall over the land of Egypt, but not in the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. So they began to see this distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. They began to see that this God preferred them over the Egyptians, and this God was more powerful than the gods of the Egyptians. So they began to put their trust in that God. But if you're the Israelites in this situation, you haven't done anything to merit this. There's nothing. There's not a single story around that time that says, here's why God acted at that time other than he's a good God and he favors the Israelites over the Egyptians. You're special. You're just special people because you're his people. So he took care of them. And then the uh, Passover happens, the night of the, the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt, and they come out, and they're feeling pretty good. And they get to the Red Sea. Well, God put them there. He's obliged, right, to get them out of that situation. If I'm following you and you call me to this place and you put me in this vulnerable position, then you have a responsibility to bail me out of this. And so, yeah, it's a wonderful thing at the Red Sea, but at some level you got to kind of believe you deserve that. And then you go out three more days into the wilderness and there's no water. Well, that's, again, it's on you. You're the one that called us here. It's up to you if you want to show us you're a good God that to do this. And so he provided water for him. So in all these things, they can, they can have a sense of entitlement, frankly, and a sense of that, that we're special in a way nobody else is. We're favored in this way. And so we're pretty good. We must be better than other people. And so in all this, they're afraid of God because he's powerful and he's great. But they don't know much more than that about him. So when they commit the sin of the golden calf, suddenly they're not. They're not any better than anybody else. 
they've sinned grievously, and we'll talk about that again more next week, against this God. They've turned their backs on him. They've broken the, the first bunch of commandments just right away. They've made other gods, bowed down to them and worshiped them. So then, when we come to the passage that we're going to be looking at over the next bunch of weeks, when the Lord proclaims that He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation, what they've learned is He's exactly the kind of God people like us, sinful people, need. And it's interesting because in there, God flips the script a little bit at the end there because in the, in the Ten Commandments, what He led with was He would visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate Me. But that's what He started with. And then He said, but I will keep steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He said that second. This time He leads with that. He leads with visiting, um, forgiving sin, and giving steadfast love and faithfulness. He leads with that, and then almost as an aside, says, but uh, if you don't repent, then I'll visit the iniquity of the fathers to the children's children to the third generation. What they found was, they weren't all that special. They weren't all that different from the Egyptians. And what they needed was not just a God of power and strength and might who could do all those cool things to protect them from harm and to deliver them from their enemies. What they realized was they needed a God who was merciful. And so now they get a different revelation, and that revelation is a God you can live with. Not just a God that you fear, but a God who loves and who is merciful. A God who can live and dwell among His people, knowing that they're a stiff-necked people. And then not only can God say we're a stiff-necked people, they can say we're a stiff-necked people. And they can say it with the knowledge that they have a God who forgives. A God who recognizes your stiff-necked people but that's not the end of the story because you're my people. You're my beloved. And I want to be among you. And so the relationship changes from Exodus 20 to Exodus 34 because the revelation of God changes between Exodus 20 and Exodus 34. And thank God that it does. And thank God we get the complete revelation of that in Jesus on the cross. We have an even greater revelation of the mercy of God. We know that it knows no bounds and that He opens that covenant from just the Israelite people to all people through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen to that and thank Him for that. Next week, as I said, we're going to be speaking more about and looking at Exodus 32. If you want to take a look at that, take a look at it. We're going to spend some time looking at a whole lot of things about that episode with the golden calf that maybe you've never thought about or considered before. So we'll take a look at that next week. So come back and join me then on Faith Seeking Understanding.